I think that's all for the announcements. We were going to have the uh, church directories here this week, and we had some technical difficulties with the printer, and we didn't realize it until yesterday, and we had already gone to the Walmarts one time, so we were going back. <laughs> Acts chapter 28, 27, something. Yeah, 27. Lucy messed with the speaker, and I think it was turned all the way up, so that should fix our problem. Cool. Acts chapter 27. If you'll remember with me, the last several weeks we've been talking about Paul. Paul's been accused of something he didn't do. Paul, because of that, is going through a series of trials, and he's ended up in Caesarea, being tried once again, really more of a hearing, so that King Agrippa, who's been brought in by King Festus, or Governor Festus, there's a Felix by this point, Festus, has asked King Agrippa, who is more aware of what's going on with Jewish customs, he says, hey, why don't you come and listen to this Paul, listen to his accusers, and maybe we can write something down that he's been accused of, that he's actually guilty of, so when I send him to Caesar in Rome, it doesn't seem ridiculous. Because at this point, they've not been able to actually find out anything that he's been accused of that's actually true. And so Paul, uh, being put on trial, has been found over and over again to be not guilty. And they actually mention that at the end of chapter 26. Agrippa, who had been called in to hear this testimony of Paul, he said to Festus there in verse 32, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. The only thing that he was guilty of at this point is appealing his trial, his accusation, his judgment to the seat of Caesar who was the emperor over the whole deal, the whole Roman Empire. And so he's saying, I want to go to the Supreme Court because that's where I should be tried. Now we know that Paul has been told by the Lord that just as he's testified in Jerusalem, so he must also testify in Rome. And so he's also seeing this as an opportunity to go. He knows that he's going to go either way, and so he may as well go through the judicial system that he's been going on anyway. He's basically going to get a free journey to Rome, paid for by the Roman government, because he knows it's God's will for his life to testify and to tell everyone he can meet about Jesus, including the Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And so Paul, and he even writes that in the book of Romans, he says, I've always desired to come to you. He says that over and over again, but he was hindered until now. Now the hindrance was that he couldn't get over there, but now due to the fact that he's been falsely accused, he's no longer hindered. Although we would see a, an imprisonment as a hindrance to God's will, Paul sees it as actually the avenue through which God is going to take him to do his will. And so Paul is now still a prisoner of Rome, technically, but he's also free to do the Lord's will as a prisoner. And so we find him this week, since he's appealed to Caesar and not to any other man, he wants to be tried by Caesar, he's going to be sent to Rome. So chapter 27 verse 1 says, When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. This is a regiment of a hundred soldiers, a centurion, we've said this before, is a leader over a hundred soldiers, century, centurion. And because of that, Julius has now got Paul, he's in charge of him. 
So entering a ship, verse 2, of Ad Adramitium. I don't know how to say that. I went to Farmington. We can't read those kind of big words. We put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. And Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. Now that's just a small note there where it talks about Aristarchus. But Aristarchus is later mentioned. He's one of Paul's cohorts. He's one of his travel companions. And so it says there that Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with, not me, but us. Meaning that he's talking in the first person, talking about them, including himself, the writer, which we know to be Luke. So Aristarchus and Luke both are with Paul on this journey. And I think sometimes we forget that, that Luke is writing this, some of them from accounts of other people being with Paul, but in some of the instances, he's actually with Paul. So when you think about this journey they're going on, how did Luke get to go with them? Did he sell himself into slavery so that he could be a slave on this merchant ship? Or did he pay his own way so that he could stay with? Luke's also a doctor for occupation. Did he give his services to be the ship doctor? Or did he pay his way to go and on this journey? We don't know, but just interesting thought that these men were willing to travel with Paul, even though Paul was a prisoner, and it was a costly journey. So the next day, verse 3, we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty, remember that word always means freedom, to go to his friends and receive care. Now, if you look at, at this map with me, you'll see on the south end, you'll see the Northern tip of Africa, you got Alexandria there in Egypt. You can see the Nile Delta there. And then up here where this red line starts, I don't know if you can see it very well or not, but that's Caesarea, where Paul was being tried by Festus and Felix and then Agrippa. So he gets on this ship and they sail north on the coast up to Sidon, <coughs> which is modern day Lebanon. So when they sail to Sidon, they stop there and they need to stay somewhere and, and get some supplies. And it seems that Julius, this guy that's in charge of him, treated Paul kindly and gave him freedom to go to his friends and receive care there. Now, why did he do this? Well, we know that Paul is being sent to Rome because he has rights as a Roman to appeal to Caesar. So this servant, this centurion, is giving him all of his rights. He's treating him like a citizen. Innocent until proven guilty. And so because of that, he's taken him up the coast and he's given him the freedoms that basically he has. Verse 4. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So they sail up the coast under the shelter of Cyprus. And that's kind of like if you've ever been to a, a big bay, they usually have some sort of concrete wall that's a shelter that keeps all the waves from the main sea from coming in and battering the shore. Well, here they don't have that, but what they do have, keeping shielding them from the winds of the main sea, is the island of Cyprus, which would kind of divert all the extra waves and the winds. And so, as they travel up the shore there, Cyprus is kind of keeping the main winds and stuff from hitting them. And it says there, because the winds were contrary. Now, I thought about contrary this morning as I was getting Lucy ready to come, and she was actually pretty, she was kind of following and, and listening to the rules, and, hey, we need to do this, and she would go with me. But you've had those mornings where you're trying to get something done. The goal is to get to church or get to work or 
wherever you're going, maybe it's a family trip, and your children are contrary, meaning they fight you on every little step. Lucy is like that some days, but actually we're pretty blessed. She's not usually like that. But she can be contrary. Hey, we're going to put your socks on. No, I'm going over here. You know, hey, we need to eat your food. No, I'm throwing it on the floor. Contrary. So that's the idea. These winds were being contrary to the ship. The ship's trying to go north, and if the winds are contrary, they're not letting them, the wind's not helping them. It's actually hindering them from going. And so the, the, the trip is not the easiest. Verse 5, And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. A lot of big words there. A lot of names of cities and towns. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So they've made it all the way to Myra, a city of Lycia. And they're in Asia Minor. So at this point, they get off of this ship and they get on an Alexandrian ship. And these ships, what they would do is they would go back and forth from Rome to Alexandria and they would ship grain. This grain was for the Roman Empire and they had all their fields where they would grow the grain there in the Nile Delta where we know from reading the Old Testament accounts that this was a very fertile area. And because of all that water kind of being naturally put through the land and the, the ground was good, it was good for growing things, they would grow all their grain there and then they would ship it to the different places in the Roman Empire. But in order to do that, they had to do what we did in the early, you know, when our country early started, we had the, the railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad. Well, they, did, they had water to deal with, so they couldn't do the railroad thing, they had ships. And so because of this constant traveling back and forth, these guys get up to Mira, and they, they get there, and they're like, okay, what do we do next? Oh, an Alexandrian ship that just so happens to be going to Rome. That's where we're going. Let's jump on this ship, and let's command them to take us. They're going there anyway, kind of hitchhiking, but on the sea. So they get on this boat, and it says there in verse 7, When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off of Sinaitis, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So they're, they're traveling, and instead of going straight, they go south to avoid the contrary winds. They're taking the path of least resistance so they can get down the coast there. And as they do that, they sail around this island there called Crete, they come along the south side, and they land in a place called Fair Havens. Now, I think of Fair Havens, I, I think of a haven, I think of a nice place to stay. It's fair. Maybe not the best, but it's fair. You know, I don't know if that's what they were thinking when they named it, but we're going to find out here shortly that though it's called Fair Havens, in their wintertime, it's, it's not a good place to stay for a ship, because the winds are all blowing from the south, and they're causing all kinds of ruckus, and apparently the best place to be would actually be in Phoenix. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there are winters where I'd prefer to be in Phoenix in the United States. You know, maybe a little bit more comfortable, nice place to winter. Maybe you don't want to live there all the time, but the winter in Missouri versus Phoenix, uh, you know, it sounds nice. You know, maybe one day, right? Lord willing. But what they're going to do is uh, they're going to head up to Phoenix. That's their plan. So when much time had been spent, 
and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them. Now, Paul, what, what is Paul on this ship? Does he have any sort of clout? No, he's a prisoner. So he's going to speak up and go, hey, I've got an idea. And they're going, we, we, we really don't care. We don't care about your ideas. You're a prisoner. You're going to Rome. We own the ship. We're sailing the ship. You're just along for the ride. You're a prisoner of Rome. And so, but Paul advises them nonetheless saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Now, why is Paul saying this? Well, at this time, it says there that the fast was already over. Now, I originally, when I read this, I thought, well, that must be some sort of nautical term. I don't get it, but it's not. The fast is a time of year when they, it's, it's a fast, it's a, a feast in Jerusalem. It's a, a Jewish feast, or not feast, but fast. Take out the E. So basically, they're, they're not eating during this time. It was a, a fast that was in October. I'm forgetting now what the name of the fast was, so I, forgive me for that. I'll try to remember for next week to make sure I fill that in. But basically, the, the time of year that this was was in the end of October. So winter's on the way. And apparently, due to Paul having sailed all over the Mediterranean on his missionary journeys, he was aware of this time of year because, according to 2 Corinthians, he had been on many journeys on the sea, and sometimes the ships had broken up and they had they'd sunk, and he survived it. So he was well aware of when it was good to sail and when it was a really bad time to sail because... You know, when you've been through life and you go through seasons, you're like, I don't want to go through that thing again. I will always remember it. Well, Paul had been through this season before, and he's like, this is not the time to sail. So he tells them this, that not only will the cargo and the ship be lost, but also their lives. This isn't a word of prophecy. This is a word of, I, I've been here before. I guess that could be prophetic, but he's basically going off of experience. Verse 11 says, Nevertheless, the centurion, Julius, was more persuaded by the guy who owns the boat, the helmsman, and the owner, excuse me, not the, the helmsman, who's the captain, the one driving the boat, and the owner of the ship, than by the things spoken by Paul. And this makes sense. I mean, if you're on a, on a ship, and some guy's riding on the ship, versus the guy that owns the ship and is driving the ship, whose word are you going to take? Wisdom says you listen to the guy that does this for a living. You don't listen to the guy that's, who knows who he is. So the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Verse 12, And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and the northwest, and winter there. So why are they wanting to go to this other harbor? Well, number one, it says there it's not suitable to winter in. Now, they had a legit reason. This was a dangerous place to leave a ship in the wintertime. There was lots of winds that would beat on it, and it was full of grain. You can't just leave that ship full of grain and let the wind beat on it. But the other thing is not so legit, although it is a reason they moved, because it was comfortable in Phoenix. It was a bigger city. There was more to do. They were going to be there for a long time. So being in a small place versus a place where there's lots to do as a sailor they're going, hey, let's head up the coast a little bit. Even if it's a risk, we're risking it here anyway. Let's go up there where it's comfortable. And so they do that. 
verse 13. So when the wind, the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, they put out to sea and they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called a Eurocladin. And that word basically is, it's the, the word that they would use for a nor'easter wind. If you've ever heard anything about sailing, it's a nor'easter that would bring on troubled seas. And it wouldn't do it for a short period of time. It was, it was tempestuous. It was very rough. And so every sailor knew, hey, about this time of year, you need to go ahead and find a harbor, stick to it, sit still for a little bit, and wait for calmer seas. And they typically would do that. But what I want to point out is they weren't trying to go across. They weren't going too far. Remember from Caesarea over here, up to, Ty, or up to Sidon, that was a day. That was a day's journey. So they're over here in Fair Havens on the island of Crete. And how far is Phoenix? It's just, it's just right up the road. We just want to take a small trip. Let's go up there. It'll be more comfortable. But what happens is that small journey ends up taking them from where that point is all the way over to the left side of the screen where it says Malta. So they just wanted to go this far and they ended up going this far because when they left, number one, they were seeking comfort. And number two, <laughs> they misjudged the circumstances. And I think oftentimes, we as Christians even, we want to make decisions, number one, based on comfort, which isn't always the best way to make decisions. And number two, we look at them as if it's no big deal. We're just, hey, I'm just going up here. And then when we start to take that step, we go, hey, look, we've got a south wind. It's a nice breeze. God's given us the way. Let's go for it. It's easy. But God's will isn't always comfortable. God's will isn't always easy seas. They get out there just a little ways. And what do they find out? Not a short time after, verse 14, a tempestuous headwind arose called a Eurocliton. And we have these Eurocladins happen. We don't call them that. That's a word that I wasn't even aware of until I read the Bible. I mean, that doesn't come up in normal everyday conversation. But what would be something in our lives that could be a Eurocladin? A, a sudden storm? Well, you know, when we started the church here in this building, when we moved from uh, Bobby Powell's down there, God had given us this place. We started renting it. So here we are the Friday night before we have our first service here. And we didn't have these walls. It was just a big open space and we were trying to make it usable so we could get in here real quick, stop paying rent here, start paying rent here, doing all the stuff. So I went and rented a floor cleaner. Now you may not be able to tell now because it's, you know, it's had some times, you know, I probably need to buff it again. But I'm in here buffing. And we were here four to six hours. And my father-in-law, who is probably, uh, let's see, he's about 64, 65. He made me look like a punk on that floor buffer. Have you guys ever used a floor buffer? Like, if you don't know what you're doing, it can rip you up. I mean, those things are strong. And so my father-in-law, who has, uh, what is the arthritis? Rheumatoid arthritis made me look like I was five years old and I couldn't even walk. I mean, he did it for like three or four hours. He buffed the floor and then uh, he's like, okay, uh, now that I've showed you how to do it, I've got to get to the house. Uh, I think you can do it from here. So I start buffing and wrestling the thing. It's taking me more of the time than it should. And so I'm thinking, hey, 
I'll come back in the morning, no problem. Uh, but let me get as much as I can done tonight. Kelly knew I was going to be gone. They were probably already in bed. It's late at night. And uh, my phone rings. You're awkward. Kelly's dad calls and says, Hey, uh, Kelly's Uncle Michael was in the hospital. He got in a car wreck. Get up there quick. It's not good. Okay. So I put everything down. I lock up. Go to the house. Hey, Kelly. We got to get to the hospital. I don't know what's going on. We need to go there and be with your Uncle Michael. We get there. He's already pronounced dead. He hit a tree. Now, we're starting our first church service here on Sunday morning. I haven't even started to move stuff over yet. I'm cleaning the floors. But you're occluded. All of a sudden, there's a death in the family. It takes precedence. No matter what your goal is, some things just stop everything where they're standing. You got you to be involved. You got to love your family and... And I had no problem with that, but it just shook me up. And so we go over to the hospital. We're over there way late. I get up first thing in the morning. We've still got stuff going on. We've got a funeral coming up. But that's an example of your Auckland. Now maybe you've been in the middle of a storm, a sudden storm like that before. Maybe it wasn't that. Maybe somebody got hurt. Maybe, you know, somebody, you know, got, you know, they, they got a warrant out for their arrest. Whatever the thing is, it always shakes you up. It makes you realize that some things don't matter. But... They happen. And Paul's going to give us an example of how we ought to act in the middle of a sudden storm. And so he's also going to act this way while surrounded by people that don't know the Lord. And the reality is, is that you and I live in this world and we're not separated from fears and troubles and worries and storms. We're still subject to them even though we have hope in Christ that we're anchored to like we've been singing. And so Paul is getting ready to go through quite a bit of a trial. So, they head out, this Eurocladon starts, and when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. In other words, they took their hands off the wheel, you know, and the reality is, is no matter where they steered, they didn't know where they were going anyway. There's clouds, there's storm, there's wind blowing, they're in a sailboat. They don't have like an auxiliary motor where they start it up and, you know, push the ship where they want to go. They're basically subject to the wind. So, running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And this, a skiff is just a boat that they would drag behind that when the ship was weighed down with all of its cargo, they'd pull up close to where they were going to harbor, they'd put down anchor, they'd get off on this ship, and they would go up to the land. They would have to leave it out in the harbor because it was a big ship. So they pulled this skiff up onto the boat when the weather got bad so they didn't lose it. And it took much difficulty. And when they had taken it on board, verse 17, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. And they struck sail and so were driven. So basically they took their sail down, they took the boat up, the skiff, and then they took these cables, and I'm trying to figure out how they would do this, but they basically put these cables underneath the boat and it's like a girdle to hold the boat together. And they do this because when you're in a storm, you start to grip tight and you hold on to everything that you can so that you don't lose all that you have. And we're going to find that there's a change in attitude as time goes on. Right now they're trying to make sure they don't lose their cargo because it's their paycheck. I don't know about you guys, but... If I'm going out to the parking lot, they just handed me my paycheck and the wind blows, I'm gripping tight on that bad boy. And that's what they're doing. They're gripping tight on their paycheck. 
And they're also fearing, they're getting ready because this storm's blowing and they're at the northern tip right there on the south side of Cauda or Cauda or whatever you want to say. There's a place there called the Sirtis Sands. And it's a, a space where there's rocks and it's shallow, but you can't see it coming. And the reality is, is even today, you can go to this place north of the tip of Cyrenaceae or whatever that is there, and there's a graveyard of old ships that have gotten caught into storms and they've gone through this area and they didn't make it. There's ships everywhere if you go down underneath the water. And so they know this and they're trying to avoid this certain peril. And at the same time, they can't drive their ship. So they're kind of at the mercy of the storm. <clears throat> Verse 18, And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. And on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now remember, this is Luke writing. So perhaps they were kind of said, Hey, we need you guys to help us. Verse 20, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They gave up hope. They're in the middle of the storm. They've tied it all together. They're ready. They're gripping tight. They're in their storm shelter, as it were. And then they're driven for a few more days. And they're like, hey, maybe we could lighten our load a little bit. And storms do that to us, right? We go through a hard time in our life. And sometimes we're like, hey, maybe, the, maybe I don't need to be carrying this thing with me. Maybe if I lighten my load, I can enjoy this a little bit better. And they start throwing things overboard so that the ship won't run as deep. And then they start showing, throwing over the tackle. Now, one guy I was listening to said that the tackle was actually their furniture. So the thing that they were going for was their comfort in Phoenix. And now that they're in the middle of this storm, they're like, maybe we don't need to be so comfortable. Maybe we just need to survive. So they're throwing aside anything that will weigh them down in the middle of this thing so that they can survive with their own lives. But they still have the grain on the ship. So they're still weighed down. And because, and then it says there, that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. In the middle of storms, what do we do? Number one, we try to tie everything down. Number two, we try to save our own skin. Number three, we start reaching out for ways to get out of the storm. Now, one of the ways that someone can get out of a storm when they're in a ship is they start to look at their own perception. How do they navigate a ship? They look to the sky. They look for land. They examine the horizon. But it says that they didn't see the sun or the stars. That's how they would navigate. They would have a map. They had a compass. They had a Another thing, I can't remember what it's called, but they basically look at the horizon with it. But they can also look at the different star constellations and tell where they're at in the ocean. That's how they navigate. Well, they, they can't do it because their sight's been taken away from them. They can't see land. They can't see the sun. They can't see the stars. And in the middle of storms, what we like to do is say, I want out of this thing. How is a way that I can get myself out? But when we look for those ways and we realize that we can't use our own perception, we then have to resign to the fact that we can't get ourselves out of the storm. And we think that this is the place where there's no hope. But when there's no hope in ourselves, where do we turn to? A hope that's outside of ourselves. And I believe that this was the Lord trying to draw out of them some sort of crying out to Him instead of their own actions, their own desires. 
And so here is where they come to the point where they say, there's no hope. Here's where they come to the point where they have run to the end of themselves. But when we get to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. We realize that maybe he can help us. Maybe he can be our anchor. Maybe he can be the one who directs us. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. God always takes me back to that passage where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Lean not, don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. He is the one that can bring you out of a storm no matter how many stars you can see. He's the one that can take you out of the impossible situations. Before Christ, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. Dead men cannot pick themselves up of, off of their own, with their own bootstraps and save themselves. They're dead. They can't do anything in and of themselves. But Christ, he raises us back to life. He forgives our sins. He gives us new life. He gives us hope. And so that's what's happening. It says verse 21, but, and I love that word, but they gave up all hope, but God. It says, after long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, now remember the last time he spoke to them, he basically said, hey, we don't need to be doing this. I don't think this is gonna end well. But in the middle of the storm, they've given up all hope. And Paul says what everyone should not say to people when they're in the middle of something like this. Men, I told you so. <laughs> Everybody hates that guy. Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and this loss. But I also want you to notice, Paul is human. And it is so hard not to say, I told you so. It is probably one of the hardest things to do, to not say, I told you so. But he did anyway. But notice he doesn't stick on it for too long. He's got a grace note here. Verse 22. He says, And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So in their minds, they're going, well, how do you know that? We just gave up all hope. This is impossible. So he tells them, verse 23, For there stood by me this night an angel of God, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve. That's where Paul's confidence came from. Here's what the angel said. Do not be afraid, Paul. I think this is important that we don't skip over this. I think Paul was afraid because God doesn't say things to us that we don't need to hear. Paul, the great apostle Paul, been through many turbulent times before, has been put on trial. His life threatened, his life almost taken from him. And he's afraid. No matter how many trials you go through in life, they're still scary. He says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, Paul says, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. We're going to be saved, but there's going to be a crash. I love this because Paul is told by this angel not to be afraid, but the thing that I told you, Paul, that I'm going to use you for, remember I said, just as you've spoken of me and testified of me before Jerusalem, so you're also going to testify of me in Rome? That's not null and void because you got on a ship and the storms came. 
I'm going to bring you through. If I said it, I'm going to bring you through it. I'm going to bring you to that point in your life. But notice what he also says. I've also, and he is also indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Does God give us things that we don't ask for? Sometimes, because he knows we don't know what we really need. But I believe that while Paul was going through this storm, he wasn't complaining. He wasn't freaking out. I think he was praying. Storms show whether we trust God or we trust ourselves. And Paul here gets a word from the Lord, I think, because he was asking for it. Lord, where are you in the middle of this thing? How come you're letting me go through this thing? And the Lord speaks to him. He says, don't be afraid. You're going to be brought before Caesar, just like I told you. And also, God has granted you all those who sail with you. I think he was praying for himself, but he was also praying for the people that were with him in the midst of the thing. So God granted their lives to him as well. He says, therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that God, I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must first run aground on a certain island. So we're going to kind of read through this last part of the passage because I don't want to rush through on the application, but I also want to finish this story. I think it's important not only that we see the storm, but that we see that God was true to his word. And he always is. Notice Paul's bold statement there. He says, I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. I think oftentimes we overcomplicate the Christian life. We're looking for some divine will that we got to like figure out. And I think sometimes we got to remember that God's just looking for us to hear what he has to say and to trust it and move forward. Not to get locked up in the paralysis of analysis, but to take him at his word and just keep going. It's that simple. And at the same time, we always are tested in that in the middle of a hard circumstance. And Paul was no different. It says, on the 14th night, Excuse me, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings, and they found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Now this is a way they would measure if they were coming up on land. To measure fathoms, they basically had a rope or something like that. They would tie a weight to it, and they would drop it into the sea, And then when they brought it back up, they would measure how deep the water was there. It's that simple. So when they're sensing they're coming close to land, probably because they've been through this before, they're trying to make sure that it's actually true and that their senses aren't lying to them. So they measure, and then they go a little further and they measure again. And as they're coming close to this island, the ground underneath the water is kind of steeping up like a hill would. And so the water's getting more shallow, so they're likely coming up on land. And when they had gone a little further, they took another sounding and they found it to be 15 fathoms. Verse 29. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now Paul's told them, we're going to run aground. We're going to crash this thing. And I think there's still part of them going, okay, but if we can avoid it, it'd be nice. So they throw down these anchors hoping to ride out the storm so maybe they can get off the boat. They've still got the skiff. They'll plant, they'll stay there, and then in the morning they'll get on the skiff and they'll go to land. They can leave the ship out there. They don't care anymore. They just want to survive. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, 
When they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out the anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and they let it fall off. These sailors, there's different groups. There's the sailors, there's the soldiers, there's the prisoners, there's another group. And then there's Paul and his people. So the sailors are going to get on the skiff, they're going to lower it into the water, and they're under the pretense of, oh, we're going to go put out another anchor in the end of the ship. They're not really going to, they're going to land, they're out of here. They're like rats from a drowning ship, they're out of there. And Paul looks at them and he says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers, Julius, the guy that's over him, goes, oh, well, that's a no-brainer. Let's get rid of that skiff so they can't get out. If, the, if our salvation is dependent upon all of us staying in the ship, then these aren't, guys aren't going anywhere. So they keep them in the ship. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Anybody in here ever gone that long without eating? I don't think it's because they wanted to, by the way. I don't think they were like doing this for spiritual reasons. I think the boat's going like this, and they're seasick. They don't want to eat. They don't care. They're, they're nauseous. I've, you ever been on one of those rides where you get off and you're like, I, I know it's lunchtime, but I'm not eating for a couple days. I feel horrible. And so I think that's why they hadn't eaten. But Paul implores them to take food. He says, today's the 14th day. You've waited and continue without food and you've eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is for your survival since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. God said he's gonna save us. So let's get ready. Let's not just sit around and expect him to save us. Let's know that he's going to save us and nourish our bodies so we can have enough energy. Because if this boat's going to crash, we've got some swimming to do. So they're not necessarily convinced at this point, but then Paul goes through with what he's told them to do. He leads by example. He stops, he sits down, and when he had said these things, he took bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. When he had broken it, he began to eat. He worships. This is an act of worship. I don't know if you guys read this and notice this, but this seems to be the same actions that Jesus Christ took on the night of his betrayal. He sat down with his disciples. He broke bread. He gave thanks to God. And then he handed it out to his disciples. Basically telling them, this storm that I'm getting ready to go through, it's temporary. You're going to need nourishment for afterwards. We're going to get through this thing. And Paul he eats and he worships God in the middle of the storm. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And then they were all encouraged. When Christians trust the God that they claim to worship in the middle of hard circumstances, it reveals an anchor that we're tied to that's not tied to our circumstances. It reveals a hope that goes beyond this situation to people that have no hope at all. Their lives are being tempest-tossed just like ours. We're not separated from the situation that they're in. Many of us have people that are going through hard circumstances and they have no hope. And we have hope that gets way beyond the storm and we don't tell them about it. Paul does this in the presence of them all. He stops, he breaks bread, he thanks God for it. In their hearing, 
He prays over his meal. And then he eats. And because of his actions, they were all encouraged and they took food for themselves. And in all were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, they threw out the wheat into the sea. Because Paul was so confident in the Lord bringing them through this, it gave them confidence, it gave them hope. We're gonna survive. We don't have to worry about being a salesman. We can be survivors. They threw their paycheck out and they trusted the Lord. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors, they left them in the sea. Meanwhile, losing the rudder, rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and they made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship, ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. Imagine the ship, it's run into shore basically, they can't see it, but it's run into the ground, the storm's still raging, and this boat, because it's solid in one spot and not tied anywhere on the other, it's just going like this, and it's getting violent. But it won't go anywhere, it won't go with the water because it's tied to something that won't move. So at this point, the ship is right on the crux of falling to small pieces. And the soldier's plan, verse 42, was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. Remember, we've talked about this. As a soldier in charge of prisoners in the empire that they're involved in, basically, if you let your prisoner get away, you get punished with what they were going to get punished. And these guys are all on death row. That's why they're going to Rome. They're going to the Colosseum. They're going to battle lions and get killed. That's the whole point for entertainment and for state punishment. Corporal punishment or capital punishment. But the centurion wanting to save Paul kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. The first time we see surfing in the Bible. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so they get on the boards and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. So a lot going on. A long story. But Paul gets on the ship. He's traveling to Rome. And in the midst of the trip, it can't just be a simple trip, can it? It never seems to be a simple trip. Trusting the Lord is never simple. It's never easy. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And God doesn't promise us that he'll shield us from every storm. What does he promise us? I'll be with you in the storm. God with us, Emmanuel came down here to relate with us. And as we are his children, we also were left here to relate with those around us that don't know the Lord. They don't have an anchor. And when they do have an anchor, it causes more damage than it does help. When they put down those four anchors, it actually hurt the ship. It didn't help the ship. Any way that the world has to anchor themselves, whether it's through drugs, whether it's through drinking, whether it's through uh, peace through family, you know, families let us down too. Whether it's a person or a relationship, whether it's some hobby, all of those things we try to anchor in order to give us peace in our lives. But when they let us down, when we grip tight to them in the storm and they don't work, the reality is there's one more thing we can anchor ourselves to that cannot be moved. There is only one thing that we can anchor ourselves to that won't be moved and that's the Lord. 
And the Lord brings them through this. And Paul experiences true worship in the middle of the storm that causes others around him to see that he has hope that can't be shaken. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and we'll close. I gotta find it real quick. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He says, Do not be carried about with various and strange teachings, for it is good that the heart be established by grace not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach, for, we have, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one that will come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Paul gave thanks in the middle of this storm. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. If we will worship God in the midst of our trials if we will share our worship and our hope and our peace with others, the reality is, is that we'll take other people with us. Who was saved in the ship? Who made it to land and survived the storm? Every person on the ship. And it was because Paul was faithful and trusted the Lord and his obedience to God's word for him saved 276 people physically. But the reality is, is that storms that we go through, many times the way we handle them will either make or break someone else's faith. It's a hard truth to handle, and it's a huge responsibility, but God's going to be the one that's faithful both to do it and to bring it to pass. Their faith will not be in you. It'll be in the God that you trust in. And I love that because he lets us be a part of their faith journey as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much, not only for salvation, but when you save us through storms. And the reality is, is that many people come to you hoping that they won't experience storms anymore, and that just doesn't happen. Sometimes you lighten them for us because you know we can't handle them. Sometimes you allow ones that we, you know we can't handle so that we'll be more likely to trust you. So Father, teach us to trust you in all circumstances. Give us joy so we can finish the race. And Lord, help us to be anchored only to one person, Jesus Christ. Not a hobby, not a job, not a, a relationship, not a substance that we think will make us feel better. But Lord, help us to anchor our lives to you. And as we do that, give us the faith to keep holding on and help us to remember that you're the one holding on to us. Lord, we trust you. We love you. We ask that when you do allow these storms that we would be found faithful. Strengthen our faith muscle. And Lord... Uh, we love you so much and we thank you that you're the one that brings us through everything anyway. 
We pray that those around us would see our trust in you and that they would want a relationship with you that could bring them through anything this life has to offer. Lord, use us as your missionaries to share the hope of Christ with a world full of people that don't know you. You know the people that you put in our path that you want to reach. Lord, help us to be aware of that and to be very intentional about the way that we trust you and trust you in front of people. Lord, we need you to do this. And Lord, we're willing to do this. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.